So let's read, uh, here we are to Jonah chapter 2. I'm going to read right through, uh, and then we'll get into it. Uh, Jonah 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Father, thank you uh, for this morning. Thank you for... Thank you for all the snow and for getting everyone here safe, Lord. I pray that as we uh, dive into your word this morning that uh, you would speak through me, that your gospel message would be clear, and um, yeah, you would just walk the halls this morning as we, as we dive into your word. Amen. So right off the bat here, we, we uh, pick it up with Jonah in the belly of the fish, praying and offering up praises, and interestingly here, actually, we see in verse 2 that this prayer that he's uh, offering up now is actually a prayer of thanksgiving. Verse 2 says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. So we don't know exactly what this original prayer, when it's taking, pra- when it's taking place, but we do know that Jonah has already been calling out to the Lord, and that there's a knowledge of comfort from the Lord. Jonah called out to the Lord out of his distress, and God answered him. We don't get a word-by-word account of what the original prayer looked like, but as we go through Jonah's prayer here, we see, uh, we see some, you know, some ideas of what he was praying about, and, and some rec- he recounts a bit of what he was praying. So as we go through, Jonah's prayer currently is it's, it's kind of split up into two parts. You've got kind of verses 3 to 6, which involves... Um, Jonah admitting his mistake, he, he realizes where he's at and the situation he's in, kind of fully understanding the problem that he's in. And uh, verse 7 to 9 is, is a little bit more about Jonah praising God, looking to God, remembering all the things that he is and all that he's done and the, all that God will do. So as verse 2 goes on here, Jonah talks of himself being in the belly of Sheol. And this got me thinking, what is Sheol? Um, I think that word gets thrown a lot, around a lot in the Old Testament. You see it. I think I remember you, it's said 66 times in the Old Testament. Um, and you know, what is Sheol? Is it hell? Is it, is it heaven? Is it, what is it? Was it, you, you often hear the word Hades as well. Is Hades and Sheol the same? Is hell and Sheol and Hades the same thing? What's going on here? Um, you know, it sounds like hell because I'm sure that's probably where Jonah feels like he is right now in the belly of the whale. And so 
I looked that word up. I studied it a bit. Um, I actually looked at the Hebrew and the Greek of Sheol, and some interesting stuff came up. Sheol is Hebrew, and Hades is Greek. And those two words can actually kind of be interchanged. You see Hades more often in the New Testament in the Greek. Um, and in, So in the Old Testament, pre-Jesus Christ's resurrection, people were governed under the law, the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai, which was designed to expose sin. And, and the people of the day, the people of that day, they tried to follow the law the best that they could. But, of course, they fell short. So, what did they do to atone for their sins? They sacrificed animals. And so, this is start where it starts to get good. Currently, we are saved by faith, just like people of the Old Testament. Ephesians 2.8 tells us, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. However, we currently are saved by faith of an event that already happened, Jesus Christ dying on the cross for you and for me. And in the Old Testament, people were saved by faith of a Savior to come in the future, that a Messiah would come to be declared a son of God. And because those people lived in a time of the law before the grace of, of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection— uh, they actually go to a different place than we go to now upon death. They go to Sheol or Hades. Sheol is, it's a place of intermediary, um, and it actually has two levels. It has a level for the righteous and a level for the unrighteous. Uh, in Luke chapter 16, we read the story of Lazarus the beggar and of the rich man. And so in that story, the rich man is is on the unrighteous level, and he looks up to the from one level of the unrighteous to the level of righteous in Sheol, and he saw Abraham and Lazarus standing up there. And he, he, he cries out to Abraham and Lazarus to begging to be saved from the torment that he's in. Um, and so the level of Sheol, where Abraham and Lazarus are, the righteous level, is also sometimes referred to as uh, Abraham's bosom. You might see that in the Bible if you read that. And so similarity to the, to the place of Sheol... I believe we have a sort of waiting area for those saved by faith through grace of the modern death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is referred to as paradise. Uh, in Luke twenty three forty three, when Jesus is hanging on the cross after he's been beaten and, and uh, hung up on a cross, he's got a man on either side of him. Jesus tells one of them, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, when the flesh dies, the soul, the soul goes to be with the Lord. But this is when it gets even better. Just wait. Hold on. You see, our God in heaven, he is a just and righteous judge and lawgiver. And there will come a time at the end of days when judgment will happen. Revelation 20 talks of judgment of every man according to what they have done. The righteous go to heaven and the unrighteous go to death. The lake of fire, you know, the unrighteous, they get what they want. They want distance from God. And sometimes that's actually something that's kind of hard to talk about, right? The, the idea that, the idea of hell, the idea that there is a place where uh, there's potentially complete and utter separation from God is a real possibility. You know, sometimes modern day in society, we like to teach the idea that, you know, as long as you're, you're a good person, 
you know, you'll go to heaven, it's okay. Or, or you know, hell's just a place that we say to scare people into to being good. And But let me tell you something, hell is real, my friends, and it actually kind of scares me, <laughs> to be honest. But, uh, yeah, the idea of hell is, is pretty scary. But let me tell you something that, you know what? If you are sitting there, and you, maybe you're on your iPad, or you're reading your Bible on your phone, and you're thinking... How much longer till I can go on Facebook or how much longer till I can load up Instagram? Just hear this one thing out. This is the most important part of what I'm going to say today. Right here. By faith, through the grace of Jesus Christ, we do not have to fear death. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, my sins are forgiven and there's nothing that can take that from me. If I acknowledge the cross and ask Jesus to come into my life to be my king, I can look forward to the day of judgment. I, I don't have to have any fear. I can eagerly await the day when, when God comes back and judges and I can be in eternal life with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? So let's move into verse 3 and 4. Jonah recounts uh, where he is, how he got there. And as we read through 3 and 4, there's a couple key words uh, just to remember just to look at the word you and the word your. It's kind, of, um, it's kind of Jonah's way of just remembering that everything comes from God. All that happens comes from you, God. So verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Did you know that when Jesus was crucified and he was laid in the tomb for three days and three nights, he didn't take that chance to be like, oh, thank goodness, time to get a good night's rest. I've been working hard for the past all these years and it's time for me to take a good night's sleep. He didn't do that. That guy didn't rest. He doesn't ever stop working. Uh, he, in 1 Peter 3, verse 18 to 19, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And Ephesians 4, verse 8 says, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Verse 9 says, In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? So Jesus actually went down to Sheol itself and ministered and led a host of captives. Revelation uh, 1 tells us that God has the keys of death and Hades. Isn't it awesome to know that God has the keys to everything? That he has us in his hands? That there's nowhere that God can't find us? And you know what, to some... Hopefully no one here, but you never know. To some, that might seem like a bad thing. But let me tell you, the God of mercy and grace and love and patience and goodness and kindness and joy and hope and peace and, should I go on? And holiness and justice and truth and faithfulness and you know, I could go on forever here. But that God, the God of all those things and more, is watching over you. He's caring for you. He's sending a whale to eat you when you should probably be dead. Verse 4 goes on, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. 
yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. So at the end of verse 4, Jonah starts to realize that he is going to look upon God's holy temple once more. He's starting to realize that this whole thing that he's going through is not a punishment. It's an intervention. Do you guys ever watch that show Intervention on on A&E? Man, that show, this is just me, but that show is some brutal television. (laughs) But there's some interesting habits of, of people on that show that are undergoing the intervention. And and there seems to be like three different ways that they'll respond when they walk into the room and surprise, it's an intervention, it's not a birthday party. They'll either, one, they'll, they'll accept that they need help and, and they want to change and they'll, they'll go forward with the change. Or two, they'll, they'll fight it a bit, you know, they'll walk in and be a little caught off guard, a little, a little angry, but then they'll realize, no, no, I do need help and they'll accept the help and they'll want to change. Or number three, the people will walk in, they'll be ready to eat some birthday cake, and then they realize it's an intervention, and they get angry, they get defensive, they, they kind of start to fight it, and they just storm out, and they don't want to change. And how often are we, how often am I in category three with God? How often do, how often do we undergo times of trouble, or times of stress, or you know, our job gets tough, the home life gets a little uneasy, school might start to get hard, and, and you know, we call out to God, we say, God, why, why are you doing this? What did I do? Why are you punishing me? What did I do? What didn't I do? And why don't you, God, why don't you go pick on someone else for a change? But God is intervening in your life. He isn't punishing you. God wants you to grow. He wants you to flourish. He wants you to succeed. But, you know, the best things in life, they don't come easy. It, it takes a bit of work. It takes a bit of a gentle prodding in the right direction. And, uh, you know, when you're in the thick of it and, and you feel that, that life has a hold on you, when the weeds are, are wrapped around your head and, and you feel like you're at the bottom of the mountain, who's there to pull your life out of the pit? God. This is an intervention. It's not a punishment. And like every good intervention, there's a side to it that involves a a bit of work, a bit of discipline and focus. You can only be helped so much without putting any effort in it all. And as we look back at the previous six verses, you see some some very similar phrases and figures of speech as some of the Psalms. You see, Jonah, Jonah was a man of God who knew God's word. He didn't know God's word only when it was convenient. No, only when the times were going good, he was able to recite the Psalms. But he had them memorized so that he could recite the Psalms even when he was, you know, in the dark pit of a, of a fish's belly. And not only could he recite the Psalms, but he actually used this, the framework of the Psalms to learn how to pray. Psalms, meaning a sacred song or hymn, are... are they're examples, actually, of, of how we should be praying and worshiping. You know, reading a psalm a day and memorizing scripture is so important. I read a study this week, a very fascinating, well, I guess fascinating. It's not that cool of a study. <laughs> From 2012, it surveyed 2,900 Protestant churches. 
and found that only 19% of people in the churches that they studied responded as reading their Bible every day, 19%. And 25% responded as reading, you know, maybe a few times a week. How are we ever going to grow if we aren't being engaged in the living word of, of Jesus Christ? The primary way that the Holy Spirit talks to us is through the Bible. You know, when we're in the thick of things, when life is, is, is hard and, and things aren't going like you want them to, are we going to be able to remember Scripture? Or, or is that one classic joke from the Big Bang Theory going to be clogging your brain and you won't be able to memorize any Scripture? Jonah was a man of God's Word, a man who, who took the time to memorize Scripture. And I'm sure it wasn't easy. Sometimes... I wish I was like Jerry Veal up here just ripping up guitar solos all day. But it doesn't work that way, does it? It doesn't work like that. You got to put some time in. You got to put some practice in. You got to have some repetition. Verse 7 goes on. 7 and 8. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Jonah's biggest worry here, Jonah's biggest worry is not that his life is fainting away. It's not that he's in the belly of a fish. It's not that he's on the brink of death. You know, it's not that, oh, I heard my wife was making roast beef for dinner tonight. I'm not going to make it home. But his biggest worry is the thought of forsaking his hope of steadfast love. The thought of dying and going to Sheol on the side of the unrighteous, away from the presence of God, away from the steadfast love of God himself. You know, the kind of love that, that came first before all other forms of love, the kind of love that would send his own son to die for you, the kind of love that allows us to be called children of God. Jonah didn't have a fear in the belly of the fish of death, but he had a fear of what could potentially happen after death. And the thought of being apart from God, of being like a man who paid regard to vain idols, similar to probably what was happening in Nineveh, you know, worshiping golden idols, worshiping money, worshiping sex, putting their own thoughts in front of, in front of God's, following their own desires. Jonah knew that paying regard to vain idols like that would not end well, and his voice of thanksgiving to the Lord is offered. Verse 9, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. In the belly of the fish, uh, you know, I don't think there were any grade A lambs to be sacrificed. So Jonah does what the next best thing he can do is, and that's to offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and the statement that salvation belongs to the Lord. Currently, we don't have to follow the Old Testament law of sacrificing animals to repent of our sins and, and wash us clean. Thanks to the ultimate and only sacrifice of Jesus Christ dying for you and me on the cross, we can offer a praise in the exact same way that Jonah does here. A voice of thanksgiving for what he has done for you. A voice of praise and acceptance that salvation comes from the Lord. It doesn't come from your neighbor. 
It doesn't come from the good works that you do. The deliverance from sin and its consequences are due to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's all. Full stop. Verse 10 goes on. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. That fish was a good listener, isn't it? Much better than Jonah. God spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And what a way to go, I guess, eh? I guess better out that way than out the back door. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just saying, it's a tough call. I'm not really sure, but can't imagine it was a pleasant experience. I don't know. So God pulls Jonah up out of the belly after three days and three nights, and... Uh, you know, Jonah doesn't wait to praise God and repent until after he's delivered. Jonah gets to work right away in the belly of the fish. After repentance comes deliverance. Romans 10.13 says, All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not the other way around. You don't get saved and then call on the name of the Lord. You praise the Lord and you call on his name and you will be saved. And you know what's awesome about that? After you call on the name of the Lord, great things will happen through you and in you, far greater than you could ever imagine. For example, spoiler alert, after Jonah gets thrown back up on dry land, he goes to Nineveh, a city filled with people who don't know the right hand from the left. And through Jonah, mercy was shown to the whole city who repented and turned to God. Let me show you some other people in the Bible who were used by God in great ways. There isn't just Jonah. In 1 Kings, we have the story of Elijah, the man who called on the Lord to send down fire from the heavens to to put out the fires of the prophet, to put out the, consume the prophets of Baal. Uh, the same man who, during severe famine and drought, called on the Lord for rain, and it was sent to Samaria. And yet, all these things are done through Elijah, by the Lord, and yet as soon as one queen, one human queen threatens Elijah's life, and all of a sudden Elijah's scared, he's running into the wilderness, he's hiding, and he's even wishing to die. He doesn't want to live anymore. Uh, But you know what? God cared for Elijah. He sent an angel to nourish and and take care of Elijah, and, and Elijah realized the errors of his ways. He repented, and got sent back to where he came from. And, you know, after that little incident of running away and wanting to die and all that weird stuff, God used Elijah in unimaginable ways. Sending fire down to kill Elijah's enemies, using Elijah to actually part the Jordan River so that him and Elisha could cross on dry land, and eventually actually taking Elijah up into heaven on a whirlwind of fire and chariots. Or take a look at the 12 disciples, a classic example. Even through all their time with Jesus, spending years of their life with him, walking all over the land, seeing him perform miracles and and, and doing just amazing things with him, with the living son of God. When the test came, the test at the Garden of Gethsemane, what did they all do? They all ran. They were out of there. They didn't want any part of what was going on there. But then what did they end up doing? They went on to perform miracles of healings, perform signs and wonders, bringing glory to God. These men, all these men, 
even though they seemed like disappointments and and in their own eyes, they were probably felt like utter failures. God was already intervening. He was already shaping, already molding their lives for the great things that were yet to come. We see Peter, arguably the pinnacle of failure in the Bible, the man who denied Jesus three times. He doesn't know when to keep his mouth shut. He was scolded by Jesus, and it was actually even called Satan by Jesus. Yet God used Peter in surprising ways. In Matthew 16, we see Jesus say, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You see, the church was built upon the, upon the disciple Peter, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Isn't that a cool thought? The powers of hell shall not prevail against the church. The church is the bride of Christ. How important the church is. So important and powerful that even the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I actually had a great conversation this week about uh, the importance of church and how God uses the church on earth to actually fight the devil. That there's, there's a battle going on right now between good and evil and the church is the light of the world like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. And who's the church? Is this building the church? Is this disco ball the church? Is the building up the road the church? No, no, you're the church. All you people are the church. Your role in Christ is so important. Did you know that you're called a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So you may not have ever, you know, been in the belly of a fish. I don't know. You maybe, maybe you haven't preached to hundreds of thousands of people. You know, you, you probably haven't cured the lame. You probably haven't healed the sick. But that doesn't mean there isn't work for you to do. As a member of God's church, you are a light to the darkness. Just because you haven't been in the belly of a fish anytime recently, you know, that doesn't mean you're not allowed to go through tough times. Life is messy. Life is hard. We're in a constant battle, just fighting the devil just to hold our ground. And, you know, just because you're a candle in the darkness, that doesn't mean you're not allowed to flicker once in a while. But when you find yourself in that place with weeds around your head, you're in the valley of the valley of the mountain, you're in the deep. Do like Jonah. Look to God, pray, offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving for what he has done and what he will do for you. Don't be disheartened. There's much more work for you to do. So maybe you're sitting there, your stomach is grumbling a bit, and... Um, you know, your, your mind's starting to waver a bit. You're thinking about all the snow out there. You're thinking, I sure hope it doesn't snow later because it's gonna, I'm gonna have to get out the snow shovel again. Or maybe we're thinking about where we're gonna go sledding after this. I heard we're all going sledding. I don't know. Uh, or maybe you're thinking, boy, Blake, I just woke up, actually. Good to see you. I didn't know you were preaching this morning. I have no idea what you've been talking about. Well, let me leave you with this, this, this one thing. 
When you're experiencing persecution or problems, pray with praise and present your proposition to the pervasive and prevalent providence and you will receive power. Did you get that? Did you get that? One more time. A little bit slower this time. When you're experiencing persecution or problems, pray with praise and present your proposition to the pervasive and prevalent providence and you will receive power. In other words, long story short, when life is hard, which is a lot of the time, pray to God with praise and you will receive power. Persecution, pray, praise, power. Learn from the Psalms how to pray. Declare the truths of salvation that they come from the Lord. And you know what? Hold on tight because God's going to use you. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us, Lord, that your hand is, is reaching out for me right now, even though I may have, I may have wronged you, Lord, that, that I'm a sinner and, and I need to repent, and your hand is there just waiting to, to grab hold of me, Lord. And, and Lord, I just offer up a, a sacrifice of thanksgiving for what you've done for me and what you will do, Lord, and I pray that you just fill everyone here with your power, Lord, that we can be a light on the hilltop for you. Amen.